Good evening, and welcome to tonight's webinar. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to welcome you all this evening. I'm so excited to see so many friends and so many new faces here for what should prove to be a fascinating and interesting conversation. Uh, tonight, we're joined by many of the founders and members of the organization Free Black Thought for a conversation entitled <clears throat> excuse me, critical social justice pedagogy and black well-being. I'm excited to have everyone together tonight to talk about a topic that is constantly coming up in the news as a source of frustration and interest and confusion and engagement throughout education, whether that's at elementary, secondary, or post-secondary level. That is the role that social justice and particularly critical theory play in education, the good, the bad, the impact, and some of the ways that we might think about the challenges that that provides to our conversations. As educators, I welcome you all to join us again throughout the conversation tonight. A couple of quick notes from us before we jump into our program in detail. If you've joined us in the chat, uh, not in the chat, but make sure to rename yourself so that you show up in our list as who you registered for the event for. That'll make it easier for us as we go through and send out uh, certificates for participation after the event is over. Secondarily, I want to encourage you all to jump in the chat and engage in the conversation throughout the event tonight. We'll be capturing questions, pulling those into the conversation throughout, but particularly focusing on that in the Q&A portion of our event. Without further ado then, let me jump right in and welcome and introduce our guest tonight. Uh, this evening, we're joined by some fantastic individuals with many, many years in education at all levels. I'm excited to first introduce Dr. Tabby Lee, a founding member of Free Black Thought. She's contributed to the design, implementation, and evaluation of numerous educational and professional development programs. Her commitment to teacher education and pedagogical design is grounded in her experience as a lifelong educator and a national board certified English, civics, and social studies teacher in urban American public middle schools. Dr. Lee prepares K-12 and higher education faculty to work with diverse students by focusing on better understanding the pedagogical and curricular implications of ideology in practice. Joining Dr. Lee tonight is Jason Littlefield, who brings two decades of experience as an educator to his role as executive director of Empowered Pathways and as a designer of Compassionate Humanism, a humanity-centered framework for life, leadership, and learning. Welcome, Jason. Joining uh, Lee and Jason tonight is Connie Morgan, who's a Christian, wife, mother, and user experience researcher located in the Pacific Northwest. Connie has a background in economics and public relations and has worked in higher ed and marketing. She served five years in the United States military as a military intelligence officer. Her main research and writing interests are the family, education, and personal liberty generally. And finally, I'm pleased to be joined by Eric Smith, Associate Professor of Rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. Although he has eclectic scholarly interests, Smith's primary work focuses on the rhetorics of anti-racist activism, theory, and pedagogy. He is the president of the Foundation for Free Black Thought. Smith's recent books include A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, The Semblance of Empowerment, and The Lure of Disempowerment, Reclaiming Agency in the Age of CRT. Uh, all, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'd love to start with Eric. Uh, I've asked that each of our uh, speakers join us this evening, talking a little bit about their area of expertise, share some of the challenges and opportunities they see. Let me begin first with you, Eric. I'd love for you to sort of lay the groundwork for us when it comes to thinking about uh, critical social justice, pedagogy, and education, and the relationship that has with Black well-being. What are the important things for people to know? What are some of the issues that you write in work? considering? Um, well, first of all, I want to say thank you, uh, the Sphere and, and you, Alan, for allowing us to uh, have this platform tonight. I think it is 
as you said, a very important and timely topic and it needs to be discussed more and more. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think the best way to convey uh, my thoughts on critical uh, pedagogy or uh, education influenced by critical theory is uh, through telling a story, uh, basically. And it's not the most exciting story in the world, but it's very informative. Um, then, in the framework for success in post-secondary writing. So it's kind of a uh, best practices for uh, college professors who are focusing on teaching writing or uh, you know rhetoric generally, rhetorical studies, things like that. Um, the point of this is to help educators help students acquire rhetorical knowledge, critical thinking, and knowledge of conventions, meaning you know um, what ways of speaking or writing are preferred in what context and, and things like that. The people who compose this framework, identified several habits of mind that will help students acquire these, these skills. And I, I wanna go over those, um, those habits of mind quickly before I move on. Curiosity, the desire to know more about the world. Openness, the willingness to consider new ways of being and thinking in the world. Engagement, a sense of investment and involvement in learning. Creativity, the ability to use novel approaches for generating, investigating, and representing ideas. Persistence, the ability to sustain interest in and attention to short and long-term projects. Responsibility, the ability to take ownership of one's actions. Flexibility, the ability to adapt to situations, expectations, or demands. And finally, metacognition, the ability to reflect on one's own thinking as well as on the individual and cultural processes used to structure knowledge. Those all seem to make sense to me in helping students to uh, acquire rhetorical knowledge, critical thinking, and, and knowledge of conventions. Um, it is not by any means a stretch to say that these habits of mind are imperative uh, for rhetorical success. I mean, you kind of need to be uh, curious and open and flexible uh, to be able to hold forth in a variety of contexts and things like that, whether you're speaking or writing. However, there is a problem here. And the problem is, wait for it, those habits of mind are inherently racist. Why are they inherently racist? Well, the short answer, the answer really, um, is, well, most of the people who composed that framework were white. So they couldn't possibly, because of their positionality, understand the habits of mind preferred by students of color. That is the take here. Um, this was expressed during a keynote address at a, a large conference in my field of rhetorical studies. And I want to read a little bit from that. Uh, the speaker, when talking about the framework, says, um, well, first of all, it was made by a group of uh, you know, white people that I, I told you about, mostly white anyway, it wasn't even all white. Um, and this perpetuates white supremacy. Um, and the speaker says that good work done by conscientious white people can still kill people of color by codifying white language supremacy. The presence of their white bodies perpetuates historical racial injustices Damned if they do, damned if they don't. 
There are no easy ways out of the still cage of white language supremacy. He goes on to say this. I ask you compassionately to the audience, he says. Notice your own white fragility. The point is the inevitable and embodied whiteness. It can be very visceral, thick in the air for us people of color. I need you to feel how whiteness is good-hearted, smart people, whiteness in, I'm sorry, good-hearted, smart people like these folks who do great work can fill a room with their whiteness to the point that the one or two people of color in the room can feel suffocated. I want you to feel how a good group of folks like this can silence the few bodies of color in the room, never examine their own white habits of judgment, and then canonize those white habits as simply habits of everyone's mind. So the speaker and various other people in my field see these habits of mind as kind of a conceptual Trojan horse for white supremacy, um, which is to say that expecting students of color to cultivate these habits of mind is inherently racist in itself. So you can see the disconnect between um, valuable skills um, that our students of all colors will need to be successful out in the world and the lens of critical pedagogy that basically pits an oppressor and oppressed mindset in every uh, educational um, instance. In my field, um, you know, it's particularly emphasized, um, which is why I'm here, which is why one of the reasons I am a, a uh, co-founder of Free Black Thought, which is all about viewpoint diversity and curiosity and flexibility and realizing that you need to be open to the fact that not everybody is exactly the same, even if they kind of look the same, right? So this is the danger going on in my field. These wonderful and, and helpful and tried and true habits of mind are being demonized in themselves because, well, most of the people who came up with them had white skin. So I'm here not because I am a K through 12 expert, but because I believe that what's going on in higher education is kind of a preview of what's um, going to happen in K through 12 if it isn't happening already. And it is happening already in a lot of situations. So I'll stop talking there and let others speak. Eric, thanks so much. I appreciate the, the introduction and the context. I think what you've shared is a particularly challenging situation for us all to grapple with. Right? So part of what we wanted to do in bringing the conversation together tonight is engage in a question that says, how do we think about social justice? How do we think about it in a way in which it's being considered across multiple different groups? Really excited about that. I want to make sure we come back into it and dig into it a little bit further. The additional, so I want to go next to hear a little bit from uh, Connie, who's joining us tonight to talk a little bit about her experience in education as a mother, as a parent, as a homeschooler, and some of the unique ways in which she has approached education and some of the challenges that that has presented in her experience. Connie, let me turn it over to you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I get asked all the time, why I homeschool, why I've chosen to homeschool my children. And I get asked that question because I don't come from a homeschooling background. I don't look the way people typically expect um, homeschoolers to look, though that's changing. And my response 
responses typically I homeschool for all the reasons. And according to qualitative and quantitative data, the three main reasons that folks homeschool, and this is consistent across the board, socioeconomic, ethnic, religious groups, or lack thereof, because a lot of atheists homeschool as well, is one, a desire to teach religion, some kind of philosophy, two, concerns about the school environment, that could be racism, bullying, peer pressure, that kind of thing, and three, concerns about the curriculum, which is the big talking point of the day, I think, across America, is those curriculum concerns and critical race theory and the sexualization of children and book bans and all that kind of thing coming up. So I know we're all very familiar with the debates surrounding that, but for a lot of Black families, it's, um, it's just about wanting to see more representation in all subjects of the Black or African influence. So I want to touch on each of those three points and why specifically um, they're calling out to Black families to homeschool at greater numbers and why that's a good thing and why it's actually a form of positive, I'll say social justice, though I, I don't really like, I, I'll just call it justice, um, and why we should be celebrating that and why public educators, private educators, and homeschoolers can be joining hands and actually um, engaging on this journey of people being empowered to take responsibility for their children's own, own education together. So um, first, let me just kind of set the tone here, set the foundation. Before the pandemic, 40% of homeschool families were ethnic minorities. So even the idea that before the pandemic, it was mostly like a white Christian thing wasn't true. Um, and now since the pandemic, we've seen homeschooling just explode among um, ethnic minorities and, and white families, just it's, it's exploding in general, right? But before the pandemic of that ethnic minority group, black families were only, only 3% of black households uh, reported that they homeschooled. Now, since the pandemic, 16% of black families report that they homeschool, so a huge growth. So now they went, black families went from being the smallest, the least likely to homeschool to the most likely. So 16% of black families report homeschooling according to the 2020 census. We'll have to see if that stays consistent. Um, though in my anecdotal experience, the black homeschool movement is just exploding, but we'll, you know, we will have to see. Um, so 16% of black families now report homeschooling compared to 10% of white. So just huge leaps and bounds, right, in terms of homeschooling. And the number one reason, just like any family, any type of family that black families are choosing to homeschool is for religious reasons. And understandably, um, schools, public schools are a little bit, they have their hands tied when it comes to religion, but black people, according to polling data, are the most religious group in America. Some polls say as high as 97% of black Americans um, report believing in God. That doesn't mean that they're super devout or they go to church every Sunday or that they're even Christian, but this is a very, very religious group, at least in terms of having a placing a value on spirituality. And that um, isn't able to be taught at the schools for the most part, with some exceptions. And so here I'm going to drop um, a little nugget of a little resource that I think might be something that public schools might want to look into um, in order to sort of appease and enrich all of your students. So um, there's a curriculum called the Nianza Classical Community Curriculum that was started by Dr. Angel Adams Perham that is teaches the Bible as literature because the Bible can be taught as literature in schools. Even though there's a lot of pushback in terms of any kind of religious involvement whatsoever, it's actually not illegal to teach the Bible as literature. And any class that's is worth their salt will tell you that it's important to have an under basic understanding of the Bible in order to understand literature across the board. The great thing about Dr. Perham's work, and she also wrote this wonderful book, it's called The Black Intellectual Tradition, I have it right here, Reading Freedom into Classical Literature. She is a staunch opponent to this idea that largely comes out of critical theory, and Eric was touching on this, 
that because the classics are dominated by white authors, it's racist to teach the classics to children. Um, Dr. Perham says, no, that's not the case. And in fact, there's a lot of black intellectuals that are very much a part of the classical tradition. And we should be teaching this to our children. And she weaves that into her curriculum as well. And there are already public schools adopting the Nianza classical community um, curriculum. That book is a great resource. Um, like I said, teaches the Bible's literature. And then it involves um, black intellectuals into that tradition as well. So you're kind of knocking off two blocks. You're getting more black involvement in teaching history and literature, and you're also teaching the Bible as literature, so infusing those Judeo-Christian values in actually a secular way to children. Um, the number two thing that people are concerned about, particularly in the Black community, is, is bullying and racism, and studies have found that Black students are more likely to be involved in bullying, um, and that can be as the victim, the aggressor, or a bystander, but homeschooling students takes you out of that, right? Um, nips it in the bud right then and there. So that's why a lot of black families are choosing that. And now we're having conversations about, do we, do we um, you know, segregate black students from white students? Do we separate them? Do we get rid of gender altogether? And we don't say good morning boys and girls, we just say good morning students. And one area in which there's segregation happening in schools that doesn't happen in homeschooling that nobody really talks about is actually age segregation. So from kindergarten through high school with a little bit of mixing in high school. Generally speaking, your kids are only surrounded by people their own age all the way through, right? Which is not how homeschooling works. And it's not how real life works either. In real life, you're expected to know how to interact with people of all ages, and you will interact with people of all ages, right? And that actually affects your involvement in the community later on. So if we want to build strong Black communities, or white communities, or Latino communities, or XYZ community, we want children to be able to interact with people of all ages. We want them involved in the community. And according to, to studies, homeschool students are more likely to be able to name a leader in their community, whether that be the mayor or a police chief or something like that. They're more involved in the community. And then they go on as adults to be more involved in the community, right? They're voting more in local committees. They're volunteering more. And that's how we do build generational community growth and success within Black communities and not. So a lot of Black people are recognizing this. They're like, I want my kids out and about. I want them shaking hands. Homeschooling allows me to do this. But one easy way that public schools can sort of address some of these concerns is get rid of recess that's age and grade segregated. That's like an easy fix right there. If your school's not already doing that, I would encourage you to approach your administration and say, hey, we should be mixing up all these age groups at recess at a minimum. And there's other, other things that you can do to, to intermix age and, and, and um, even get elderly folks involved, but um, I gotta keep it quick. So I'll keep moving through my topics, but the recess one is a really easy way to fix that or to make steps towards fixing that. And number three is the curriculum concerns. And this one, even though that's kind of why we're here to talk about the critical theory, I know I don't need to beat, beat this horse over the head, right? We're, we're all very, we get this in the news constantly. But what I will say is that I would encourage, because I know a lot of you are parents first, your teachers and your parents, is that, you know, parents can take, need to take ownership as well. And that's what we're seeing happening with, with Black families. It's like, one of my heroes is Wilma Rudolph. I didn't learn about her in school, but I can't expect my public educators to teach me everything that I think is interesting and valuable to my students. Parents need to take charge. If your school isn't teaching your children about Emmett Till, you don't need to necessarily whine about it. You can bring it up. You can say, hey, I think that would be good. Or you can do what my father did. And he said, I will teach my children about Emmett Till. You know, so some of that responsibility is on parents. Um, and I think it's unfair at times for people to say, well, the public educators, they're not teaching what I 
exactly what I would want to teach my kid. The public educators aren't teaching your kids exactly what they want to teach their kids. There's just not enough time in the day. And so I think that we should be holding hands. There shouldn't be any animosity. It seems like it's almost like people are breaking into teams and it's a competition between public and homeschool and who's better and who's got it right. We can learn from each other. There are things that public education can steal from homeschoolers and homeschool parents, we love to read books about education. Who usually writes those books? Teachers, educators. We're constantly feeding off of each other. And so I hope with these little nuggets, you can maybe be prepared to you know, lend yourself as a resource because a lot of these black families in particular are gonna be first generation homeschoolers. They're gonna need help. They're gonna love to be able to lean on you and we're not on different teams. We're all, it takes a village, right? The African proverb. And so I hope that, you know, with some of these resources, um, when someone says, hey, I'm thinking about homeschooling my child, you can go, great, that's wonderful. For so many years, black families, you know, fought to be a part of the public age, public education system and have their, their um, kids in school and public schools. But I just was doing an interview with Latasha H. Fields yesterday, and she told me, you know, why would we fight so hard to have our oppressors teach us how we were oppressed? Now, most teachers living today are not oppressors, but her point is Black people and all, all parents were designed, were made, it's our God-given right to nurture and lead our children, and that should be celebrated. When a parent raises their hand and says, actually, I can do it myself. Um, that can be celebrated. And ultimately the data shows that children perform better in school um, and they go on to live healthy, happy lives when they're homeschooled and we all have the same goal, right? So let's grab hands across the public, private and homeschool spectrum and um, raise up these kids together. So I'll leave it at that. Al, can I just say one short thing? Absolutely. Um, everything Connie was talking about, about uh, parents taking responsibility and things like that. A um, friend of mine, Kamanji S. Thomas, just published a book called My Father, My Hero, which is exactly about that. A father taking it upon himself to teach his uh, uh, child things that he doesn't think he's getting at school, right? And uh, it, it's, it's, it's about championing that sense of uh, parental responsibility that Connie was talking about. So I just wanted to give a FYI for that. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. That looks like a great book. Uh, Connie, thank you for that perspective. I think it's fantastic to be thinking about some of the unique challenges and opportunities as a, a homeschooling parent and some of the ways in which these similar concerns and conversations that are happening across the entirety of education are happening in that space as well. Uh, one quick note before we move on to our next presenter, make sure you guys are throwing those questions in the chat. We're going to be turning to Q&A here pretty soon. Very eager to get some of your thoughts to make sure we can weave those into the conversation. Up next, I'm going to turn it to Jason Littlefield. So Jason, you've had a, a really interesting and fascinating experience in your career as an educator, being involved in uh, DEI initiatives early on, seeing some of how that field has changed over the years, and then looking to find another way to achieve those kinds of beneficial outcomes for students that still promote the goals of DEI education, but with a different and, and humanist approach. I wonder if you, you might share a little bit about your journey and your approach to the way that you think about education and empowering students and families. Sure, uh, I've been a public educator for 21 years. I was a high school American history and government teacher for 11 years. I was a high school assistant principal for three years. And in 2012, I saw the ideas that were at play, I saw where we were heading and I chose to take that parent responsibility and also just to 
to live life to the fullest, and I made the decision to go overseas. I was the director of an international school in China, and then I was transferred to Benin, Africa. And after that, obviously, I came back to the United States. Uh, I think God had other plans for me. And in 2014 to 2021, I was a social and emotional learning specialist uh, in Austin, Texas. And around 2017, 2018, our work shifted to more DEI and anti-racism work, specifically equity work. And I started asking questions because I understood the philosophical background. And I wasn't sure if all of my teammates understood what was going on. And I was demonized as perpetuating white supremacy uh, for some of my viewpoints of having a human-centered solution. Because I knew that we, could, we can't fix what we're trying to fix with a political solution, especially one that is anti-liberty. And I came across two pieces of research that really shook me and motivated me to do something different and to provide educators with something else. And that's the work of Richie Davidson out of the Center for Healthy Minds, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His team found four neuroscientifically validated constituents of well-being, four different areas of well-being, and they are resilience, outlook, an outlook is a positive outlook, believing that people are good, believing that the world is good, generosity and attention. And all of these constituents demonstrate plasticity, which means that the more we practice them, the better we get. So essentially, well-being is a learned skill, like riding a bike or driving a car is a learned skill. And I began to think about well-being through that critical social justice lens and specifically the, the resilience piece. If somebody believes that they are oppressed and that they will never make it in this world, that resilience area of the brain isn't getting exercised. If they believe that the world is an inherently racist and evil place, and those people over there are inherently evil, inherently racist, then that area of the brain isn't getting exercised. If we are doling, doling out generosity and kindness based off of immutable traits, that area of the brain isn't getting exercised. And attention so his research also determined that 40% of the time we are not focused on the task that we are doing. So that one was already kind of at a limit there. So I started bringing these, bringing these concerns to my team and to those in my profession. That this ideological framework is actually impairing the brain's neural circuitry associated with psychological well-being. And it, we didn't even have the conversation. I was begging if we could please talk about our approach. We just need to talk about our approach. I'm not trying to be right or wrong. 
we have to talk about our approach. And that never happened. And then in 2021, I could no longer be a part of that team and question the ideology because my job description as an SEL specialist went away and a new job description was written. Uh, and part of that included advancing critical social justice. So now my job would have been tied to advancing these ideas that I knew were bad for human beings. So I left that profession uh, and what I've been doing, well, let me, sorry, let me skip, go back. The other piece that I came into contact with was that all humans have the capacities for prejudice, aggression, and cruelty. And whenever we view someone else as different from us or as an other, whenever we prioritize their group identity, then we're actually reinforcing those psychological capacities for prejudice. So I saw us advancing an ideological framework that was impairing the neurocircuitry of well-being, of psychological well-being, and that we were reinforcing and strengthening the innate human capacities for prejudice. So I just saw us building a world in which we are putting humans into conflict, into constant conflict with each other. So I started working on a framework, I call it empowered humanity theory, that it is a set of attitudes and practices that actually strengthen the brain's neurocircuitry associated with our psychological well-being, and it decreases and tamps down that capacity for prejudice. And I've been working last year with a school district, uh, Dorch Dorchester County in Maryland, on they are wanting to make empowered humanity theory the base framework for every single thing that they do as a district. So that's that's uh, what I'm doing. And I provide professional development and coaching and consulting around empowered. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your story and telling more us about it. Uh, if you have a second, there were a couple of questions there in the chat where I think you'll be better answered, uh, be able to answer than I will around uh, the four areas that develop the brain and some of the theoretical framework. Uh, so just real quickly, what, what are, again, those four areas that develop the brain? Uh, resilient, outlook, generosity, and attention. And that work comes from Richie Davidson of the Center for Healthy Minds. Well, thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. Uh, I have a lot of questions for you, but I want to make sure that we get to Lee and hear sure. a little bit about her story and experience. So excited to turn the conversation next over to Dr. Tabby Lee. You've been involved in education at the middle school level, at the higher education level for many years now and have a very interesting experience when it comes to thinking about, well, these issues and some of the challenges that come along with it. Instead of me trying to share your story, let me pause and just turn it directly over to you. Dr. Lee, tell us a little bit about your experience and what you've run into in the field of education and the topic that we're considering tonight. Yes, um, thank you uh, for all of the previous speakers. It really just got my mind thinking. Um, as uh, Alan mentioned, I go by Lee, which is my last name, a lifelong educator. Um, this is my vocation. I've been teaching for a very long time and also supporting teachers and schools and administrators as well. Um, I really appreciate how, uh, how Eric um, touched on how policy and depending 
on the lens of interpretation that's being used. Uh, different policies, like when you look over the, the um, document that someone dropped the link to, the Framework for Success in Post-Secondary Writing, um, it has things in it that as educators, we're all familiar with, you know, that sound familiar to us, these habits of mind, um, they seem like very positive things. Uh, but when they're interpreted through a lens of, that I call a neo-reconstructionist lens, um, it can have a very different meaning um, and, and all things can become different, almost like you're jumping down a rabbit hole of sorts. Um, and then too, with Connie's presentation on uh, the homeschooling and how do we supplement learning for well-being, um, that's so important too. Um, because sometimes our schools may not be meeting the needs of our students, you know, no matter how they're racialized, Black or otherwise. Um, and as parents and community members, we have a, an important part to play uh, in terms of filling in and supplementing what may be missing. And then also turning to what Jason mentioned um, about that brain-body connection. That's something that's so overlooked um, and that we're not paying enough attention to. Um, and again, that lens that's used can, can influence how we even see those things. Um, as he mentioned, um, some of the ideas that Jason mentioned would be considered, you know, wow, they're, they're really out there. He said, all humans have the capacity for prejudice, you know, um, just a while ago, that was something common sense for all of us. But in today's world, um, that's, that's, that's something different. There's a new definition of racism that's used in most of our educational spaces. Um, it says that you have to have power plus privilege to be racist. Um, and it says only certain groups of people can be uh, racist. And so when we're thinking of even how do we define and understand racism so we can best combat it, right now we have a mixed stew of things going on in different schools and in different places, depending on the ideologies that are in use. And that's been a big thrust of my work um, as a teacher, as a researcher, um, really trying to get people to understand ideology and practice. And these various ideologies are ways of viewing the world or frameworks of thinking and how they impact how we're engaging our students, um, how we're engaging communities, families, uh, the curriculum, uh, everything that, that we're engaged in. How are we engaging our colleagues, ourselves? Um, and so I think it's important that we do start to get a better understanding of that, especially, especially as we look at the ways that policy impacts what we do as teachers in the classroom. Uh, or as, you know, um, teachers in the homeschool setting, if we're doing it as parents or, you know, family members who are helping out. So um, I, I just wanted to express appreciation for each person. Um, and to just highlight, too, that what we're really talking about um, a lot of times is this different way of viewing the world, which is a critical social justice lens. Um, I want to just separate the two from a classical approach, which is one we may, many of us may be familiar with or even working under. It's very different than a critical social justice approach, uh, which a lot of the examples we've heard today so far are really on the critical social justice uh, spectrum of things um, and the impacts that they have on students and on well-being, on, on communities. Uh, we're starting to see them now, and they're not always so positive. Uh, even when people have the best intentions, right, when you're trying to apply theories in different ways, we see a lot of um, misapplication of critical theory, frankly. Um, and that's led us to a lot of the uh, problems that we're in right now. So classical social justice approach, I saw that in the chat. Um, it's one that is really uh, based on uh, freedom, individuality. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're not connected to one another or that we don't recognize interconnectedness. Um, it understands knowledge as being tied to um, agency, free 
will, but also being something that is objective. Um, so a critical social justice which would approach would say that there is no objective knowledge, that everything is subjective, um, that everything's related to the power dynamics and, and the oppressed and the privileged and so forth. Um, I hope that sums it up for the person who was asking. When we think of outcomes, um, in terms of critical social justice, we're talking about equality of outcomes. That's very different than a classical social justice approach where we will be talking more about equality of opportunity. So you can see the difference in terms of how I think about the world, what is a just world to me, um, and how that might look in practice. And we're seeing a lot of the critical application uh, right now in, in many spaces, civic and educational spaces. Lee, thank you so much for that. I think that but lays a fascinating groundwork for us to be thinking through some of the ways to consider everything that we've heard so far from Eric and Connie and Jason puts it all in perspective in a way that I think is really informative and engaging. So uh, given where we are in the timeline, I just want to ask one question for the panel as a whole. So for any of you who would like to jump in and touch on this point, then we'll start taking those questions from the chat. And there's been so many great ones so far. The question that I wanted to put in front of all of you is, uh, as you've talked about approaching the question of justice or social justice and distinguishing critical social justice from classical social justice, often what we haven't heard so far is why the other approach might be appealing. That is to say, if someone were to make this sort of full-throated defense of something like critical social justice pedagogy, what's the argument that they're making? Each of you in one capacity, the other has suggested that there's something about the other approach that's disempowering. I don't think any of them would actively argue we like it precisely because it's disempowering. So what's the best case scenario? Uh, I'll open it up broadly for anyone who wants to jump in from the panel, but what's the best argument to be made in favor of something like uh, a sort of critical social justice pedagogy? Um, well, I can, I don't know if I can answer that question directly. I can definitely uh, uh, talk about how, you know, what seems disempowering is considered empowering uh, to a lot of uh, critical social justice pedagogues or just critical uh, pedagogues. Um, the idea behind critical social justice, one of them anyway, is social transformation, right? Um, we are not happy with the status quo. Uh, it is inherently oppressive. We need to change it. And it is systemic, meaning that it courses through all aspects of society. Now, that contradicts the mission of most educational institutions um, who are trying to it's still an education that will help people be happy when they go out into the real world, successful, uh, fulfilled, um, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So if you're teaching these skills, like say the habits of mind I talked about before, or, um, you know, um, standardized English or, or something like that, you're basically helping these students be successful in a society you don't like, right? Uh, here's how to be successful in the in the society of trying to transform and get rid of, right? Uh, so there's a lot of um. I've had uh, professors actually express that. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know this goes against what I'm trying to do, you know. But uh, but I I still have to do it. That's also why a lot of courses are basically Trojan horses uh, for critical social justice and a lot of uh, what I will call Marxist slash Leninist uh, thinking and, and and education. 
right? Um, yeah, the syllabus says we're doing one thing, but we're really talking about social transformation and, and, and things like that. Uh, so that's kind of the justification for their empowered disempowerment, you know, uh, if, if, if I can try to coin a phrase right now. Um, yeah, I'll stop talking. I have something just real quick. Uh, sorry, Lee, do you want to go, go ahead? Okay. I think mo most people are good. Most people want to do good things in the world. And right now, the critical social justice is pretty much the only way to make the world a better place, to be good and to do good things. And I think people think that it's the continuation of the civil rights and just this natural progression of fighting for liberty and trying to get rights for people. However, it's, a, it's, it's the wrong tool. If you're a good, kind-hearted person and you want what's best for everybody, this is, this is not the right tools. I think a lot of people are using this tool set unaware that it is damaging and it is eroding individual sovereignty and the you know a free society as a whole. I think most people don't know that they are using tools purpose for destruction. Thanks, Jason. Lee. Yes. Um, am I on? Yeah, I'm on there. Okay. <laughs> I would just say that. Um, you know, I, as someone asked earlier, um, is it a matter of choosing between this approach or that approach? Um, I wish it were. Um, in too many spaces right now, uh, you are working under a default position. Um, and that default position is a critical social justice uh, approach, even when it's not directly stated. Um, and that's why I love for people to ask questions and to keep asking questions and to get to the bottom of, as someone was saying here, and when we talk about equity, what are we meaning when we say that? And when we speak of merit or excellence or any of these ideas, diversity, inclusion, what do we really mean? What are the philosophical roots of what we're talking about? Because until we get clarity around that, we're all just kind of shooting past each other and meaning different things. And, and in the meantime, a far more sinister subset is advancing with its own definitions um, and, you know, as, as we see it in practice and see what's being manifest in our communities and, and in the world around us, um, some of us are starting to go, oh, you know, what is this? We should, we should name it uh, so that we can say, you know, what it is um, and what are some alternatives. Um, and if people want to keep, you know, um, taking that approach, uh, at least they'll be more aware and transparent about it. Um, and they'll say, you know, that we're intentionally, you know, uh, manifesting a critical social justice environment in our learning environment for our students, for our staff, for everyone here. Uh, what does that mean? How we see one another? Um, some of us are going to be victims and some will be oppressors. Um, we'll have segregated racial affinity groups where, you know, we go and we counsel with our racial tribes and then they'll come back with their representatives and, and represent them, you know, to the whole group. We need to be clear about what we're doing and saying we'll have our segregated uh, graduations like we do at so many of these institutions now. Um, and we'll call that empowerment and celebration. Um, and so there's there's issues with that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm being a little cheeky, but 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 not because that's really what's happening in many of our K through 12 schools. Just no one's saying it that way. But if you look around at the actions that are being taken from the policies that are being made and, and enacted, um, you see in your environment these types of activities. And, and 
some of us are just asking questions and saying, you know, is that is that the only way we have to do this? Is this the only tool that we have? Uh, is this really empowering our students? Um, when you start to ask those questions and there's hostility towards you, um, when you're shunned and, you know, friends that you've had for 20, 30 years no longer speak to you, you know, they start to question like, oh, you know, are you a decent human for asking these questions? Then we have some toxicity in our environment and it's something that we need to address. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, more people are starting to ask questions and to demand to know. And it's not an issue of, because I don't think it, I don't think anyone here, I mean, maybe I, I could be wrong, is saying like there's critical social justice shouldn't exist and it shouldn't be a epistemology that people use, you know, or an ideology they use. It does exist. Um, and the point is there's other ways of viewing these topics that exist too. And some of the ideologues and some of the spaces are making it such that if you don't adopt the critical social justice uh, ideology only and, and swear fidelity to it, you're out. And that's problematic for educational spaces and for our civic life, um, for our means of innovation and just connecting with one another. Uh, I think that we don't need to cancel out each other or say, you can't teach this way or that way. I think teachers need to have a wide array of ideologies. They just need to be more aware and conscious uh, of what they're doing and intentional about it uh, because we definitely as a whole society see the outcomes um, and see what's happening as a result of some of these pedagogies and these misapplications, I would say, of some of the theoretical frameworks. Leah, I, I love that point. And I want to stress again how excited we are to have you all here tonight as part of a conversation around bringing that sort of diversity of viewpoints, opinions, and perspectives and illuminating some of the unique ways in which people are taking different approaches to these conversations. I want to go back. Uh, Connie, while you were talking earlier, we had a handful of really great questions come in. I think one that uh, is really quite interesting, someone had asked, do you think the uh, biggest challenge to educators right now is people are angry with what we are teaching in school or what we are not teaching in school? So thinking about that, is it is the the anger, the frustration, some of the impulse toward homeschooling grounded in what is being taught or what is not being taught? How do you approach that question? I think it's different based on what demographic you're talking about, um, at least in the studies I've seen when it comes to to black homeschoolers specifically. Um, I mean, it's going to always be a little bit of both, but largely um, black homeschoolers are leaving the public education system because of what's not being taught. Like I said, they want African geography to be more like what was going on in Africa during World War II. We never learned about that. We only learn about, you know, where the United States was and where the Europeans were. We want to learn about that. We want to learn about how math, math, you know, started to come up in Egypt, the foundations of mathematics in Egypt and things like that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case for every different group. Um, I think like white evangelicals don't necessarily, they're more concerned about what's not being taught in the school with, like I said, things are kind of changing with the debates around curriculum right now, but like through like traditionally or historically, I think for them, it's the other way around. But for black for black families, I think it's what's not being taught. And I see, and I say that in part because I love that, you know, more black families are homeschooling. Um, but with this explosion of homeschooling, seeing tons of new curriculums out there, some tons of new resources, tons of tons of new websites focused at black families, um, they are centered around critical theory. They are centered around um sort of segregation in a way. So there was a 
there was a group that I tried to join. Well, I did join it, a black homeschooling group. And it said, need not apply if you are white. So there isn't this like, let's bring everybody into the fold necessarily. There's a lot of black homeschoolers out there that are adopting some of the same ideology that we see in this group as toxic in public schools, but they're actually taking it a step further. <laughs> they're actually, it's not hard enough. Um, and so I wanna see that change as well because I agree with everybody on this panel. Um, so it's a mix, I think, across across demographics. So didn't totally answer the question in a black and white way, but hopefully that helps. Absolutely. Uh, the, the next question I have was, was asked of Jason, but I want to pose the question to the whole panel. I think this is this gets at the spirit of so much of what we're talking about. Uh, so the question was, what are the right tools for good, kind-hearted people that want fairness for everyone if critical theory is the wrong approach? What about our proud history of activism in the United States? So another way of framing that question is to say, if we are interested in bringing about superior outcomes particularly for Black families and children, but for all students and all families. How do we do that? What are the ways that get there beyond embracing something like critical social justice pedagogy? How do we move things forward? Eric, do you want to take a stab at that one first? Uh, sure. Um, when I hear questions like that, the first thing I think about is Ian Rowe's uh, book, Agency. Um, in which he talks about the, uh, the importance of family, religion, education, obviously, and entrepreneurship, right? So he, he sees uh, a lot of the issues that people will just, you know, automatically attribute to racism as something that can be dealt with uh, in the home, in the uh, congregation, right? Um, and, and actually teaching uh, students, you know, the benefits of uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, um, instead of uh, demonizing capitalism wholeheartedly, right? Um, so I would, uh, this is a long-winded way of saying buy Eero's book, Agency, and, and read it. You'll get some uh, interesting alternative ideas to what's being fed to you through critical social justice. Anybody else want to take a stab at that question? Uh, Jason, Lee, Connie? Um, I'll take a stab at it real quick. I think that actually generationally the ability to think critically about things has been eroding over time and that actually influences the way that we parent and think about how we're supposed to raise up children. So um, for example, the other day I went by a school and it had a huge banner and it said it was an elementary school. It was a Waldorf elementary school, probably the type of school I would consider sending my children to. And it said, but the banner said, 98% of our students go to college, which is great. You want to send your kid to college, wonderful. But when I'm thinking about what is my goal as a parent raising my kids, or what is your even teacher's role in raising and not raising and educating students and bringing them up to be um, members of society that can contribute, college isn't necessarily a part of that. I want to raise good humans, humans that go out and they have a good moral framework and they are, are pleasant to be around and they can stay, when they make families, their families stay together. Um, and so I think a lot of it is actually like, let's think critically about what actually is the goal here from taking little humans to adults and how do we infuse that into our education, which is part of why I like the classical tradition as well is because it is focused on teaching kids, not just how to do math, but an appreciation for beauty and how to recognize truth and why truth is important and those kinds 
kinds of things. And ultimately, when you have that, if you want to go to college, great. If you want to go to trade school, great. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom, great. But I think we need more humans that um, have that kind of moral foundation and moral focus as opposed to go to college, make money. That's the goal of life. Jason, uh, what Connie has just shared sounds very similar to some of the pieces that you talked about earlier. What are, what are some of the ways in which empowerment theory supports that approach? One of the attitudes is to establish a value-centered identity. The critical social justice, they talk about identity based off of our, our biological traits and your identity is fixed according to your skin color or gender or sexuality, whereas empowered humanity theory promote a value-centered identity, and that is every person identifies their core values and you live your life daily in accordance to your values, your thinking, your behavior. I'm constantly checking myself. Is this, am I acting in integrity? Am I honoring the dignity of myself and others? Am I bringing a sense of humor to this situation? Because those are my core three values. And then also uh, prioritizing mindsets of inquiry and compassion over fear and judgment. Because fear and judgment, those are those instinctual, natural reactions that we have to either an internal stimulus or an external stimulus. And whenever, if we can train our brains and our thinking process to whenever our physical safety is not in danger, how can I lean into inquiry rather than being judgmental towards this person or this situation? How can I, instead of being fearful, if my physical safety is guaranteed? Maybe there's an element, there's an underlying element of, of suffering, and that is how can I alleviate that suffering and bring compassion into this? Compassion for myself or compassion for this situation. So the more we can retrain our brains and ourselves to break some of these basically primitive evolutionary traits that helped our ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago, but really limit our potential and we limit the potential of others and we can do a lot of relationship damage with that fear and judgment. So really applying the attitudes and practices of empowered humanity theory to me is the answer because we become what we practice. Neuroplasticity shows us that. We become essentially what we practice. So if we, we can incorporate practices that strengthen what is inherently good within all people, and those same practices can tamp down those things that cause us to harm ourselves and to harm others, we'll all be in a better place. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Lee, I had one more question that I wanted to, to start with to hear your thoughts. Uh, one of the, the participants earlier asked a question around, how do we start to push back on some of these conversations? How do we raise questions? How do we, what's the kind of language that we can use to illuminate where things might happen to be disempowering and show that there's a better way? So uh, particularly individuals are looking to understand if they wanted to make a difference in their schools and in their communities, how do they do so in a way that doesn't immediately get shut down, particularly in this individual's case, whether they're concerned about as, as a white female individual, 
how's that going to be received? How do I do it in a way that opens the conversation instead of getting pushed out of the conversation? Yeah, I think one of the good things um, to, to kind of prime yourself to do in, in situations like that, where you're going to be asking questions and trying to determine like what is the um, approach that's in use in any given situation um, is just to focus on the words that are being used and said and the meaning in them. Um, like, are you hearing a lot of uh, focus in your teacher training on um, privilege and oppression? Uh, those are some key words that you'll hear often mentioned and like hyper-focused on uh, when someone's using a critical social justice approach. Um, you'll hear words like that a lot. Uh, you'll hear a strong emphasis many times on race, um, race thinking, race talking, um, seeing the world through race, a race obsession almost. Um, so if you're hearing those kinds of three things mixed together, you're probably looking at a, a space or learning environment where critical social justice uh, approach is dominating. Um, and in that instance, as an individual teacher, you know, I would just start to kind of double click those things and, and ask questions about, you know, are there other ways to view, you know, this particular topic or to talk about the issue that we're talking about um, that maybe focus on human agency um, and free will. Um, and, you know, uh, if, there, if we're being told that we have to alter our language or the way that we're engaging our students or even how we refer to our students, uh, based on made up words and, and names, uh, that's, that's another thing that's done under the critical social justice approach quite a bit. Um, when something just seems off, you know, or it seems like a word's being used um, and like people keep using that word and they're all in on what it means and maybe it's not quite clear to you, just asking those questions I think is something um, that's important to do. Uh, so often we, we don't have the courage to do it. You know, everyone's kind of sitting in the meeting and nodding and saying like, yep, that, that sounds good to me, sounds right to me. And so we just kind of go along with it instead of stepping back and doing what we would all tell our students to do, um, to question everything and to think about what's being told to us um, when we're talking about changing our practices or what we need to do in our classrooms or how we should approach the curriculum. And we have all these different experts coming from all over the place, uh, telling teachers what to do and how to do it. Um, and the craft of teaching and, and that uh, the science and scholarship of teaching is being lost in all of that. Uh, we have people, policymakers and so forth, um, experts popping in, you know, that our administrators, you know, call in for us. Um, at the end of the day, it's up to, to teachers, you know, to look at our students and to see what their needs are and how we can best serve our students and communities. And sometimes it's not what's being promoted, you know, um, at the administrative level. And you have to decide, are you able to um, have the levity to still be a teacher where you are or not? Or, you know, what kind of setting are you in? Are you having to deliver that scripted curricula um, to your students and be on the same page when someone marches in your classroom at a certain time? So there's a lot of pressures on teachers. Um, and I think just awareness of and having that um, understanding of the different approaches uh, could be a great way to push back and even to inform our students um, so that when they're sitting in a classroom and someone's doing that ideological dance with them, they can be more aware too and, and say, hey, this person's really, you know, just speaking of one perspective only, there's other ways to see this, that, you know, their truth is not the only truth here. So. Thanks, Lee. Uh, we are rapidly running out of time, so I'd love to ask each of the panelists to share uh, quick closing thoughts. That is to say, take 20, 30 seconds or so. If there's one thing that you would like to leave with the participants tonight, something for them to take away 
way. What is it that you'd like to emphasize? Uh, Jason, let me start with you and then we'll go Connie, Lee and Eric. I'll just speak to those that are thinking about push, pushing back or wanting to push back. I will say do it consistently, confidently, and most importantly, do it with grace. Push back with grace as much as you can. It may fall on deaf ears in the moment, but somewhere that grace-led attitude will help open people's eyes. Thanks, and Jason. Connie? My final thought would just be kind of reiterating what I already said is that I just want people to be able to um, bring up the next generations hand in hand. And I just, I really see this tension building between public educators or traditional educators and homeschoolers. And it just doesn't need to be that way. We should be learning from each other. We should be sharing our concerns. And like Lee was saying, there's all kinds of different perspectives. The homeschool perspective is one of those perspectives that as any type of educator, you should welcome and vice versa because it'll only make you better um, and produce better little humans that grow up to be big humans. Thanks, Connie. Lee? Yes, um, I would just say, you know, we all have to live in this world together. There are many ways to approach teaching and learning. Um, I don't think anyone has found the silver bullet or the solution. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, we should all just have intellectual humility, engaging with one another, um, with colleagues who use different approaches. Your approach may work best with you and who you are as a teacher and your students. And a, another teacher can take a completely different approach, opposite even, divergent from yours, that's just as effective um, with students. So I don't think that there's any one solution, one way of teaching or modality. Um, I think we need to coexist. Um, we don't need to cancel one another uh, or try to filter each other out through DEI statements or um, philosophies of teaching and, and judging those in ways uh, that could cut out some people that we think might be different, you know, from the status quo. That difference from the status quo is what makes America great and which makes us a, a wonderful country and a, and a great place to be, unlike any other nation. Um, and so I think that that's something that we need to remember and tap into. We need to have civil discourse and to be able to talk to one another and all of our different approaches have different val validity and, and importance for our students. And some of us are gonna keep using them whether people talk about them or not, right? So let's come together and identify some common points uh, so we can best serve our students and each other and stop all the division um, um, and all of the, you know, just trying to be right and prove rightness um, when this is a very complex thing. We're dealing with complex human beings. So that's all I would like to say. Thank you, Lee. Uh, Eric, final thoughts. Uh, two quick things. Um, first, learn everything you can about critical social justice. Um, I'm a big fan of primary sources going to the root of these theories. But you know, get your hand on whatever you can and, and read it and, and educate yourself on what's actually going on. Secondly, find like-minded people and hold on to them like grim death. Seriously, there's power in numbers. Um, it's it's uh, good for your psyche to know that there are other people out there who feel the same way as you do and, and want to do something about it. There are organizations like um, the Burgeoning Institute for Liberal Values and, and Solid Ground, uh, which work on uh, actually being there for people who are, have been traumatized uh, by a lot of this stuff. 
So those are the two things I say, educate yourself and find like-minded people. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, panelists, for joining us tonight. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us this evening. And to all of those of you joining us for the conversation tonight, thank you. I know it's the end of the school year and it's been a long year for all of us. Really appreciate the work that you're doing to engage in challenging and difficult conversations and putting in the work to continue your own growth and professional development. It's an honor to have you all here. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful evening and I wish you all the best.